0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 3 weeks ago, the rumors started to spread. Christmas was back on. For 5 days between the 23rd and 27th of December, the government will pause coronavirus restrictions. 3 households will be allowed to mix indoors. But just because we can, does it mean we should?
1: All the science points to the fact that spread happens indoors, in crowded and ill-ventilated spaces. If you wanted one bottom-line finding from everything that's been done, that's the finding.
0: Yesterday, the UK approved its first coronavirus vaccine for widespread use. With the end, now clearly in sight. Does the government's plan for Christmas still make sense?
1: One of the things that has always stuck in my imagination like the end of the First World War is that between the armistice being signed and the actual armistice coming into effect, in those six hours, some 10,000 people died. Now, think about Christmas and think about the vaccine in those terms.
0: We'll hear from one of the psychologists advising the government to try to understand the dilemmas facing politicians and the public around Christmas. You're listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, weighing up the options for a Covid Christmas.
1: I'm a social psychologist at the University of St Andrews and I sit on the advisory groups to the UK and Scottish governments.
0: Steve Reicher sits on SPY-B, a committee that advises the UK government on behavioural science and how the public might respond to different Covid-controlling measures.
1: Well, I was going to be a doctor. I'd probably been of more use if I was uh, a doctor. When I told my mother I was turning down a place at medical school, she wept was on a bus on the Hills Road in Cambridge, I remember that, and probably everybody else on the bus remembers it. I decided to do psychology, and as often happens, pure chance, I think, influenced me. I, I went to the University of Bristol, where at the time there was a quite brilliant and charismatic professor called Henri Tajfel.
0: Henri Tajfel was a Polish social psychologist. Living in France during the Second World War, he survived a series of prisoner-of-war camps, but returned home to find that all of his immediate family had been killed in the Holocaust. It shaped the rest of his life and modern social psychology as he spent the rest of his career researching group relations and discrimination.
1: And because my family was Jewish, I too was uh, fascinated by this and this intellectual challenge of understanding how groups behave. But I think the most remarkable thing about Henri's work, and it sticks with me still, is for him, groups weren't only the problem when it came to discrimination. Groups were also the solution. Because when people get together, um, work together and act as a group, they begin to be empowered. And that's stuck with me ever since.
0: Understanding group behaviour this Christmas has been one of the greatest challenges for governments. No politician wants to be the Grinch who cancelled Christmas. But with the virus still spreading, what's the alternative? But then, after months of difficult, emotionally draining lockdowns and restrictions, if you did ban social mixing at Christmas, would people just ignore the rules? Psychologists like Steve Reicher have learned a great deal about group behaviour since the first lockdown.
1: It's been a bit of a curate's egg. At the beginning, I think most people would say things were very good in that respect. And many people were surprised because the dominant view of human behaviour is that people are rather fragile, that people can't cope with ambiguity, uncertainty, they certainly can't deal with a crisis, and they panic. And so by that notion, the idea is that actually people become less resilient in a crisis. So when we found that people were abiding by the lockdown, not because it was easy, actually early research showed about half of people were, were suffering quite considerably, but people showed real resilience because they came together and they had a sense of others being there for them. And that wasn't just a sense of the community together, it was a sense of the community with the government together. Trust in the government in the early days in March, April was up around 75%. In many ways, there's been a lot of talk about what's changed since the lockdown. What's changed since the lockdown isn't so much what's happened within individuals, isn't that people have lost that resilience, it's a breakdown of that relationship with the government, that bond of trust has been frayed. It's almost been broken. And I think that is what's making things so much more difficult right now. BBC News at seven o'clock. This is Harvey Cook. The four home nations have agreed to relax coronavirus restrictions for five, five days, days around over the
0: Christmas. Christmas. Agreement has been reached following a COBRA meeting with the devolved... Families across the... Britain are being urged to think carefully before they take advantage of the relaxation of coronavirus restrictions over Christmas. The leaders of all four nations said getting together was still a matter of personal judgment. When did you first hear about this decision? to allow three households to mix over five days for Christmas.
1: At the same time that everybody else did, I wasn't ahead of the game and knowing about the announcement. Of course, we were aware that that had been considered for quite a long time.
0: And when it was announced with great fanfare, what was your initial reaction?
1: I think there are two things to be said. The first is that, without doubt, if more people mix, and in particular mix indoors, in stuffy and crowded and relatively unhygienic spaces, then there will be more infections and more people will be hospitalised and, tragically, more people will die. So if everybody takes up the opportunity to meet with two other households over five days, then the celebrations in December will give way, sadly, to mourning in January and February, which seems especially tragic given that we now seem to be closer Uh, to a vaccine and to a position where we can be safe. But on the other hand, what isn't certain is the best way of limiting that interaction. Is it to tell people you can't do it? And will people go along with that? Will they ignore it? Will it, in the end, break the bond of trust with government? So is it better than to say, look, you can do it if you want to, but think very carefully about the choices, Now, I don't think that's an easy question to answer, and I think it would depend upon a number of factors. It would depend upon the levels of trust in government, which are different in different parts of the UK. So I've spoken about how it's plummeted at the UK level. Actually, I should say in the UK government. So in England, the levels of trust in the UK government are about... 30% 30% in Scotland, the level of trust in the Scottish government is about 70, 75%. But the other thing is that there's a very well-known psychological process called reactance. famous paper by Jack Brehm, 1966. And he makes a rather simple but quite a powerful point. He says, look, if you forbid things, you make them more attractive. And if you forbid things, people are motivated to do them, not necessarily because they think it's a good alternative, but because they want to assert their autonomy. So when you say to people, look, you can't meet at Christmas, a lot of people are going to say, oh, yes, I can, and I will. But once we say, "Okay, you've got the choice, then suddenly people have got to look at the range of choices and decide which one is best. And they might discover that the previously forbidden fruit isn't quite as sweet as they thought it is. And I think now all of us have got to ask this question. What is best for us, our families, and our community over Christmas. In a time of pandemic, do you express your love for family and your desire to see the best for your family by meeting with them or not by meeting with them. And I think once we begin to ask those things, then I think a lot of people are going to decide, well, actually, you know, I don't want to harm people. The worst gift I could possibly give would be the infection, and therefore perhaps it makes sense to do things differently. And I think the role of the government now is to help us make the right choice for ourselves, as I say, our families and our community.
0: Was this current measure, the the five days with three households mixing, was it one that you recommended? Uh, I didn't. Was it one that that Spy B got behind?
1: I don't know where it came from.
0: Um, wh- were there better options you thought under consideration?
1: For me, the most important thing is to look forward rather than backwards. If we criticise, and I do criticise at times, it's not just to be negative, it's to say, let's learn from those mistakes. I think in this instance, it's almost impossible to say what would have been the right balance. I think the really important thing now is to help people make the right decisions, to make sure that we don't have too much mixing, because all mixing is a risk. The Covid-19 vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech has been approved by regulators for use in the UK. The Health Secretary... Because we've got the vaccine, so let's hold our nerve through this winter. It's going to be a tough winter. It's been a tough, tough 2020.
0: And just psychologically, do you think the fact that there is now news and and hope of a, a vaccine transforming life possibly as soon as spring. Do you think that would have changed people's calculation on Christmas anyway?
1: The effect of these measures, it's how they're understood how they're represented. And so the reporting and the messaging around them becomes completely critical in terms of how people behave. If the message is, we can relax, it's all going to be okay, then the danger is that people undertake more risky behaviours. I think that's the mistake that was made in June and July, for instance, when we reopened, when it was deliberately timed for July the 4th, leading to headlines like uh, Freedom Saturday and Independence Day, and we relaxed. We didn't take the measures to drive the infection down, which is why we're in the mess we're in at the moment. So if you message as if it's all over, then actually I think people are more likely to undertake risky behaviours and infections will spread. If, on the other hand, you message it as, yes, there's hope, the finish line is in sight, but we're not there yet, I think it introduces a very different dynamic. Because one of the key factors in adherence is a sense of effectiveness. Now, the danger is that if you take measures and they don't seem to get you anywhere, there's a sense of, what's the point? But once you can see, well, actually, this could get us through to the point where there's vaccination, it changes the equation. It's a bit like if you go for a run and you're feeling exhausted, and it looks as if it's never going to end, then you might well drop out. But if you see the finish line in sight, you realize, yes, I can do it. That sense of efficacy is really powerful mm-hmm. in carrying us through. The way I look about at it is a bit like this. I, I was reading some things about the end of the First World War one of the things that has always stuck in my imagination is that between the armistice being signed at 5 a.m. on the 11th of November, 1918, and the actual armistice coming into effect at 11 o'clock, in those six hours, some 10,000 people died. American soldiers tried to cross the River Meuse in northern France and were mown down by machine guns. 1,100 casualties. A few hours later, they could have strolled across that river and being safe. Now, think about Christmas and think about the vaccine in those terms. Why meet up at such a risk when we'll be able to meet up soon in a way that is safe and will keep our elderly relatives safe and when we can party without restraint?
0: Coming up in just a moment. Back in March, some scientists warned of lockdown fatigue. Nine months later, what do we know about the country's psychological resilience? But before that, get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
1: I'm David Badil. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew.
0: I'm Saeed Avasi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Most people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, yeah. we are going to go there.
1: I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew go there.
0: Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Psychologically, you know, in March, the lockdown was much more stringent. And yet there was a slightly different attitude to it. The second lockdown seems to have hit people differently. Is there sort of a sense of lockdown fatigue? You know, did they need this Christmas measure just to get through it?
1: I think the notion of lockdown fatigue is rather vague and rather dangerous. It suggests that the problem is, first of all, psychological. And I don't think it is. In March, April, there were studies which showed that when you looked at adherence, poor people, ethnic minorities were far more likely to go out than richer people. But it wasn't a matter of motivation. When you looked at their motivation, they were equally motivated to stay at home. The difference was their ability to stay at home and put food on the table. So adherence is not always down to psychology. And if we psychologize it, we miss that the really important factor is practicality, and therefore the answer is not to berate people, it's to support people. Or again, if we look at the adherence rates at the moment, and I I was in a, a meeting looking at the latest adherence figures in Scotland. Actually, adherence is pretty good when it comes to social distancing, wearing masks. And this isn't just what people say, it comes from good observational data where you sit and you watch what people are doing. The one exception is self-isolation. And the best way forward is not to start by talking about psychological fatigue, but to look at the barriers to adherence and then to overcome them.
0: It's really interesting your analysis of that because there has been so much talk of us being rule breakers. I mean, is the evidence that the British public, are they generally rule breakers or, or followers?
1: Well, I think it's very difficult to say that in generic terms. I mean, we follow or we don't follow rules as a function of whether we think they're legitimate or not, and consensus is therefore really important. I mean, if we look at all the disputes, over the tier system in many ways actually they're not disputes about whether we need restrictions or not they're disputes about issues like equity why are you doing this to us and you're not doing it to others disputes about practicality how can you ask us to do this if you don't give us the resources in order to be able to do it it is wrong to place some of the poorest parts of england in a punishing lockdown without proper support for the people and businesses affected. It may
0: be administratively convenient to treat Lancashire
1: exactly in
0: the same fashion, but it's not fair.
1: Those types of issues are critical to whether we adhere. And what's more, if they think those restrictions are ineffective, we're even less likely to comply.
0: Would I want someone to see their family? Of course, that's what Christmas is about. But would I encourage someone to hug and kiss their elderly relatives? No, I would not. You couldn't do it within the rules that are there, but it does not make sense because you could be carrying the virus. In terms of supporting people to understand and make better informed judgments on these things, we have seen Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, and Sage saying that mixing over Christmas will increase transmission. There will be more cases as a result of this.
1: The fact that you can do something, this is true across so many other areas of life, doesn't mean you should.
0: Do you think the government is communicating that clearly enough?
1: Well, when you talk about communication, of course, it's number one what the government says, but people don't hear things directly from the government. They hear them as filtered through the media. A while back, I was at a meeting of the Scottish police, and that week... They had been to 440 house gatherings, of which less than 2% involved more than 15 people. The great majority were people having one or two more people over than they should. When the police knocked on their doors, they would say, ''Well, why are you knocking on our doors?'' ''We're not having house parties.'' People began to think, well, because the problem is house parties, they pay much less attention to what many people are doing, not bad people, not evil people, actually people who, by and large, believe in the rules and think that they're adhering to the rules. But it's all those little acts which accumulate to form the problem. So if we have too much attention on those exceptional events, we take the spotlight away from where the real problem is and make it more difficult to address it.
0: So was the psychology behind this decision, was it based on, you know, the assumption that human behavior would dictate that people would break the rules if it was banned, people would have broken the rules anyway? And does this sort of shift responsibility to people rather than to the government?
1: Well, I'm not sure that the factor behind the decision was psychology. It might also have been politics because the people that the government might have been concerned about losing wasn't the population but their own backbenchers. The government, in making this decision, is not saying it is safe. At Christmas, you could drink a whole bottle of whiskey if you wanted to. You've got the choice. It's not very good for you. You know, you could do all sorts of dangerous things. So now we can do it. We've got to ask whether we want to do it and whether it's safe to do it.
0: Do you think the government's doing enough at the moment to frame it as a, you know, this this would be the equivalent of drinking a whole bottle of whiskey? Do you think they've done enough to frame the risk?
1: I think more needs to be done. And I think the message needs to go out loud and clear. You know, you wouldn't hug your granny in the middle of a motorway. You know, it's not that we're saying cancel Christmas and it's not that we're saying don't show the spirit of Christmas. What we're saying is what does the spirit of Christmas mean in a time of pandemic?
0: The irony with these Christmas measures for a lot of people is that, you know, we've been through this rather tough lockdown to try to protect society at large. Is there a risk that if we do end up mixing at Christmas, it's actually our loved ones, it is actually our family, our grandparents, who we're probably placing at risk for the sake of a national holiday?
1: There might be circumstances where people say, I'll take that risk. If my grandmother or my grandfather is at a level where it might be their last Christmas, you might think, well, I'm prepared to take that risk. But for many, many people, you look at the risk calculus, and the obvious suggestion is, I do care for my relatives, and I do love my relatives, and the best thing is to put things off and make sure we have wonderful celebrations in 2021.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Stephen Reicher, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of St. Andrews and a member of the Government's Spy B Advisory Committee. The producers today were Will Rowe and James Shield. Sound design was by Carla Patella. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for stories we should be covering or any thoughts on the one you've just heard, please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.
1: Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.